and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the podcast about cars on screens tied with Luxembourg in the Olympic medal table. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain as ever, and Martin, since the last episode, what have you been watching? I have been watching oh, quite a lot of stuff, it's probably been like three weeks since we've, we've potted and... Yeah. Um, there's a few things I want to call out YouTube-wise. I know we do the YouTube segment later in the show, but there's a couple of things that have really stood out amongst you know my subscriptions. The first of which is Marty Carmods did this awesome music-only nine-minute um, video of them doing a turbo, uh, turbo conversion on their K-truck. They have this little... Japanese K truck with a tiny engine. What is it? Six hundred and sixty CCs. Yep. Yep. So they've got this tiny little engine, and they've got this tipper truck, which they've done adventures on. And I think if you go and watch, they've got a feature length off roading thing where they take the K truck and and like a Suzuki Jimny, um, mm. which is also worth a watch. But they did a music only build, like not a time lapse, but like a an edit, which is them putting a turbo conversion on the K truck, and. I think one of the two guys that presents Mighty Carmods actually wrote the music himself and you know, performed oh, wow. it all. And it's just, it's a wonderful kind of chill vibe of watching two guys doing an upgrade, just, you know, mm. having fun and doing something that they both love and improving a truck with, you know, they've got all the right tools, they're working indoors in a space with loads of light and loads of space. It's just a dream, really, and having it all laid over mm -hmm. with an original soundtrack, I really enjoyed that. And then the next movie after that, they actually show you the, like the, 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 version, the version with talking and them explaining mm. that, you know, we've never done a turbo conversion, no idea what we're doing. Because um, <laughs> you watch the, 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 like the montage version and it just looks like everything happens perfectly. Um, of course. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed a video they did at, um, I think probably the one before that, or where they'd, they'd bought a a show car, like one of these horrible airbrush things, um, a Civic with a questionable turbo kit. And, and you know, I said he the, the guy does his own music. He'd put together mm. a, a song about why his Honda Civic with a dodgy turbo kit on it is better than their other Honda Civic, which does the VTEC. <laughs> and... It's a teeny bit like um, that Gangnam Style song, but oh, yeah. instead he's making psh, psh, turbo noises. <laughs> it's it's really, it's a total piss take. It's really funny. I really, really enjoyed watching those two things. So I, though they're not my YouTube recommendations, we'll link them in the show notes and I highly recommend you watch them and subscribe to Mighty Car Mods if you're not already. And also, speaking of YouTube, I have to just praise Bad Obsession Motorsport. few things, well... A few things. One, they've just broken 400,000 subscribers. Fair play to them. Anybody doing that, they're doing a good job. So the last episode that came out this week was them fitting the wiring loom, some brackets, and an engine. And this was, at one point, the ninth highest trending video in the UK on YouTube. And the response is astonishing because... They kind of do everything wrong if you look at like what you should quote unquote do on YouTube. And yet people just absolutely fall over themselves to watch it. I think there's some real word of mouth that's gone into spreading it. And that build, I think, is the build. And I should say I'm, I'm kind of being contrary <laughs> by not subscribing and not watching it. <laughs> um, I have so many subscriptions right now that I, I'm trying to just cut down because I can't watch everything. Mm. And... There's something about a mini build, isn't it? Is it Gordon Murray's mini, or is that something else? I'm confusing it with. I 
I don't know. So they have a number of projects. So like last year, was it last year or the year before? They built a Citroen C1. They ran that in the C1 trophy or whatever it is and then gave it to Mission Motorsport. And But Project Binky has been going on for like seven years and it's them putting four-wheel drive and a turbo engine of some description into a mini shell. Okay, that's, yeah, that's something I must be confusing with something else. But I, I've not watched it because... Partly because everyone tells me you should watch this thing, and <laughs> yes. and I, I feel like well, no, I don't want to because you told me now, um, and then I realise that's the entire point of this podcast, and so True. you know I should probably just get over myself. I haven't watched it, but I I will give them a watch because I know you've highlighted them before on that C one build. Um, mm. I'm not a huge mini fan, but I do like no. build channels. Uh, I watch a lot of build channels. <laughs> I have to tr- work quite hard not to just come on here and recommend like loads more build channels. <laughs> and to be fair, I'm I'm not I'm not a mini person either. I I just like the fact that they do everything. They're good at explaining and actually showing what they're doing, and they have a wit and a humour about it. And there, it's not like it's massively over, overproduced or cinematic or has music over everything. It's just really, really well done. It's found an audience and fair play to them. Oh, you know what I have been watching that we did talk about last pod and that dropped just after we put that episode out was The Grand Tour Presents Lockdown. What did you think? There were bits of it that I liked. There were bits that I thought felt a bit passe and flabby and i think it lacked a bit of focus although there was a a youtube channel called some grand tour fans and they did a zoom interview with andy willman and he said in that well link in the show notes go and watch it that sometimes when they've gone to places recently they lean on the location a bit too much the fact that they're in madagascar is kind of the point and he was saying with lockdown, they didn't have that. So it's kind of had to go back to how it was and had to go back to sort of being more focused on the three of them. And I thought, is it though? Is it just a bit... It feels like a Greatest Hits tour. It feels like you're going to watch Genesis at the NEC and they all sort of come on in like Littlewoods cardigans and do whatever songs Genesis do because I don't know any off the top of my head. <laughs> What did you think? I I enjoyed about half of it. Uh, it started mm. to lose me towards the end, and the actual ending appears to have lost almost everybody. Um, oh, God, yeah. There were bits that still made me laugh out loud. Um, Hammond's car exploding in the most unlikely breakdown I think I've ever seen. <laughs> that was funny. They didn't really spend enough time on that, I seem to remember. Um, it was sort of explained in voiceover, whereas the concept of a wheel like a brake failing, which jammed a wheel, which then cracked the wheel, which caused a gearbox to fail, which blew the engine up. (laughs) It was this wonderful sort of very quick but very cataclysmic series of events that I felt they could have made more of, but was was Mm. funny for the misfortune side of things. I did think, I wonder who they borrowed that car off, and I do feel sorry for them when they give it back. (laughs) Um, I laughed my ass off at James May opening a caravan door and getting... (laughs) knocked over by water even if the gag about filling the thing up was old and tired because they've done it a million times and you know damn well it's staged yes um i kind of preferred that gag when it was the 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 old austin 
cars, the British Leyland yes. cars, when it was staged, but for a different reason. It was kind of obviously staged. They didn't go, look, we've just found a fire truck here. They said, no, we've got a challenge here. <laughs> that was funny. This felt like they're just borrowing from their back catalogue a bit and, and trying to pretend like it just happened. And mm. those are the things I think wind people up the most is when they try and pretend something that just happened when, you know, it was all completely planned. And... You can get away with that sometimes, but they've been doing it for so long now, I think it's hard for them to always get away with it. Um, I enjoyed that part. I enjoy, you know, always love seeing the Scottish Highlands, even if they do oh, yes. still play fast and loose with the geography a little bit when they're when they're cutting it together. Um, I enjoyed seeing the reactions from a lot of the American YouTubers that I follow on Twitter, like Tavarish and Tyler Hoover, both of whom are big fans of... Clarkson, the Grand Tour Trio and, you know, old Top Gear, which is what got them into this kind of thing in the first place mm. and seeing their love for the old barges. I think this had a really big appeal over in the States because of the nature of the cars that they started out with. Um, I thought I'd throw in some thoughts from my Petrolhead friends who watched the Grand Tour and kind of threw in some some text in our group WhatsApp. Um, this from friend of the show, Jack Wood. Just finished lockdown, took four attempts, was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> Not mincing words there. <laughs> um, Scott uh, says, good synopsis. I thought the ending was particularly shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Can't disagree with that. No, I... <sighs> It's still beautifully shot. I love the kind of weirdo TV show intro they did. It felt at the mm. beginning like they were deliberately making Scotland look rainy and miserable and crap <laughs> just to spite somebody on the crew. It felt like a very long inside joke about how crap and rainy and rubbish Scotland is. And then you get to the Highlands <laughs> and the, you know, the scene is beautiful and so on. Um, I did enjoy... I enjoyed chunks of it. You know, I didn't think it was as bad as everybody made out. I didn't think it was absolutely dreadful. It didn't take me four attempts to get through it. But it is a bit tired. And I don't know if that's just because mm. they've they've not exhausted the well of things to do with three blokes in cars. But as Hammond has pointed out in, in other interviews online and in the newspapers and so on, they are all getting on a bit now. Particularly, you know, Clarkson mm. and, and May are probably closer to the end of their careers of cocking about in cars for TV than they are to the start of them. And so I think there are just things that don't feel as fresh or just things they don't want to do anymore. And I know, perhaps it's time to put it to bed sooner or rather than later. Mm. I, I do feel a bit like they've gone, we need to do something. We need to get something. We're contractually obliged to do something. What about... Why didn't we have uh, American cars when we were young? Okay, where should we do it? Scotland's beautiful. Right, done. Off you go. It's uh, it's it's a marriage of convenience, isn't it, really? It's, we need to do something. Mm. We can't travel. Um, this is work, so I presume they can get away with doing it during whenever this was filmed. Mm. Lockdown one, maybe? Lockdown two? I have no idea. And so, yeah, it's digging quite close to the bottom of the barrel, perhaps, I don't want to take away from how well it's shot, and I'm sure that the edit was was full of cracking stuff, but I, I know that you said there's an interview with Andy Wilman, and he says, you know, that there was so much stuff that was banter back and forth that was on the cutting room floor. And I do wonder, you know, I think you may have cut too much. The banter is good, but it's probably not as good as 
It might have been. And the whole ending thing, what the hell was that? You know what it reminded me of a little bit? And I think we need to move on because otherwise we'll just talk about this for the whole episode. Do you remember the Vietnam special? Yes. And they get to the what they think is the end. And it's the kind of the the shore. And then they go, oh no, there's more. And then they go off to this amazing, beautiful floating village. And it just ends on such a triumphant note. That's, I, don't, I mean, I know in Richard Porter's book, he says he doesn't like the Vietnam special. I'd say the Vietnam special is probably the best special they made as Top Gear. It's yep. funny as hell because it's Clarkson in particular, massively out of his comfort zone, which gives ample material for Hammond and May to mock Clarkson, which is not always that way round. It's normally a lot of the mocking comes from Clarkson to the other two. Yep. Um, there's plenty of breakdowns. It's, beautiful it's challenging the weather is always changing um the rules that they go with the whole you can't repair the bikes and then that final hey we've got here and now you've got to turn it into you know paddle boats and find this island a it's a great destination there they really work the locations hard and they come with a great challenge which isn't you know something that has been done to death and it's just so fucking funny watching them fail (laughs) whereas this i just don't feel it was too easy it was too easy it was over too quickly and and the sort of change from one set of cars to another felt weird it just felt it felt a little bit like it was lost in the edit a bit because Mm. of reasons out of their control and there's been an awful lot of tv shows that have suffered from the same thing um, for those of you that have Disney Plus, Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus is a two out of five TV show that must have been absolutely mauled by coronavirus because it feels totally incoherent in the way that lots of the other Marvel Disney Plus shows do not. And uh, I feel like this may have suffered from the same fate. But let's move on. What have you been watching other than, you know, Grand Tour and stuff? Well, there are two things that have popped up on Netflix which I'll mention quickly, um, because I always love Back to the Future content, so I'm always going to mention it. There is a documentary, I think, possibly a series, but I think certainly a documentary um, from the BBC called The Myth and the Mogul, the John DeLorean story, which is worth a look. But there's also a great series, if you are of an age, like us, where you grew up with kind of 80s and 90s films... Netflix has a series called The Movies That Made Us. I saw this on Netflix last night and went, oh, I wonder if that's any good or not, and then didn't watch it and started watching The Firm, which I haven't watched in a very long time. that's good. But kind of going back to sort of John Grisham courtroom drama type 90s thrillers, which is (laughs) a thing that just don't get made anymore. Thrillers are not made for TV. They're made for um, Netflix now. They're not made on on Mm, cinema release. But anyway, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so The the Movies That Made Us are... A series of individual documentaries, each about 45, 50 minutes. And they are looking behind the story behind the production of things like Back to the Future, obviously, Ghostbusters, Die Hard, Dirty Dancing, Pretty Woman, films of that sort of era. It's a little bit cheesily produced and it sounds a bit like, um, you know, those like those really bad DVD extras where it's like, they thought it would never get picked up, 
but then fate intervened. Oh, that kind of horrible, overly produced... Yeah. yeah stuff for but, some kind of American cable network. It does sound like exactly. they ripped the idea off of the excellent Film Stories podcast, which does cover some of this material. It is. It's very much like the Film Stories podcast in that if you scrape away the the polish, I think it's a bit over-polished, they have so many interviews with people. They have the story of how it got to the screen. It's not just funny stories from the set. It's it's really meaty and it's well worth a watch. Um, so, yeah, if you have Netflix, definitely worth watch, particularly, like you say, if you like films of the 80s and the 90s, hands up, then those are worth a watch. Also, moving on to the news, there is a Michael Schumacher documentary coming out uh, the 15th of September... It's been confirmed. I'm not sure where it's being shown. Netflix bought it. According to Deadline, they picked up the rights to this documentary um, with a project from some German directors. There's a number of directors, um, three directors. So it's going to be on Netflix, I imagine. And it's got interviews with Michael Schumacher's family, including his wife, Corinna, his father and his brother. Presumably they mean Ralph which will be interesting because Ralph's not very public a figure and he can be quite divisive, Mm. as well as sort of prominent figures from motorsport and from Schumacher's career, like Jean Todd, Bernie Eccleston, Sebastian Vettel, Mika Hakkinen, Damon Hill, Flavio Briatore, David Coulthard, and so on and so on. Sort of the the cream of your 90s to early 2000s Formula One drivers and and movers and shakers from the Formula One world. Um, Apparently they had access to never-before-seen archive material and... The timing of the film's release coincides with the the anniversary of Michael Schumacher coming into Formula One thirty years ago, uh, which is ah, a nice it's a nice little thing to sort of to, to highlight. I must admit, when I heard the news that this was being done, I thought, "Oh God, please don't end the movie with a title card that says Michael Schumacher passed away on X." Oh, I really God, hope yeah. that's not the case. A lot of the press releases say, you know, he's not been seen in public since he had his awful accident. Um, skiing with a head injury and all of the the sort of pieces around this um, report of the documentary coming out say that he's in recovery at home and has not been seen Mm. in public and I can only hope that that is still the case Um, yes but I am very excited to see this because in period I couldn't stand the man because he gave nothing away on British TV he he had like some exclusive Mm. deal with the German television broadcaster so that he never spoke to the British press and all he did was win, like constantly to the point where F1 became unimaginably boring if you were not a Ferrari fan. <laughs> and it's only it's taken that time of him being away from the sport and for a whole new generation of people to come along for you to look back and go, damn, he was good though. And, you know, that mm. era was such a classic defining era of F1 with, you know, the V10s and latterly V8s and, and just really cool, lightweight, ultra-flighty, ultra-fast cars that have only just had the lap records taken away from them. I can't wait to see this, and I really hope it it tells all of the story. So not yes. just... I hope it's not just like this, this lionisation of Michael Schumacher as a driving god, because you could do that, but I'd love to see the man behind the story. I'd love to hear all the stories, which we've heard before of how nice a guy he is mm. and, and how he was totally different away from the track um but i would also like them to dig into what happened when he was under pressure you know your Mm. 
squeezing Barrichello into the pit wall are your Monaco 2000, was it 2006? Where he did that really clumsy uh, Raskast thing. 2000? No, it was because Button won the championship in 2000 and... He won the championship in 2006, didn't he? Button won the championship in 2009. You're thinking, you're thinking about Schumacher in... Mercedes second yes. time around. I think it was Raskas 2006 because he was fighting with Alonso for the title that year, uh, which went to Alonso, by the way. Schumacher won from 2000 to 2005 inclusive. <laughs> and if you don't know this, you should watch the excellent video that Chris is going to mention later on in the podcast. Look at that for synergy. Um, <laughs> but yes, I'm excited to see this September 15th on Netflix. What else is in the news? We have industry news. Because we have our finger on the white hot pulse of the entertainment industry. Um, I will read from an actual press release and everything. So for those who don't recognise the name, Tangent Vector is the production company of JJ, uh, JJ, JF Musial, who was one of the founders behind the Drive channel on YouTube, Drive Network. And uh, the Apex brand, of course, who've done Apex, the story of the hypercar and the secret race across America and a lot of good stuff generally. They have teamed up with a company called Cane Creek Pictures. And again, I'm reading here from the press release, a premier independent feature film finance and development production company who knew they they were a thing, who worked on such films as... Rush, that's the other one that they, the the other big one that they worked on. They've both worked on lots of things, um, but they are coming together to work on feature length documentaries, series, television, and new platforms, including a third documentary in the successful Apex film series. Well, that's cool. I've really enjoyed both of those. Yeah, and also, and I haven't seen this mentioned anywhere else, but it is in the middle of this press release a global automotive show with two of the most revered names in the automotive world. That's, That's interesting. All it <laughs> Who could they be? Does it mean the US automotive world? The global automotive world? The automotive TV presenter world? That's interesting. I, I look forward to seeing what's yeah. coming out of that. Mainly I'm more excited about a third Apex movie because the first two, the story of the hypercar, the first one, and then the secret race across America, the second one, have both been excellent. And mm. a third one in that series, I would watch that every day. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And I think it's going to be really good for both companies because Tangent Vector obviously made their name in the automotive side, both in motorsport, in uh, marketing production that sort of thing that reminds me I but still all- need to watch the um, Pike's Peak thing they did yes that was very good I need to watch that um, but the other good thing is that this also gives them more capacity because one of the things that JF said in our intermission podcast interview with him um, link in the show notes plug 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 was the fact that as a production company things like the Apex films are part showcase for the company, but they're also a passion project. They don't necessarily get the money in through the door like making a film for Porsche would or whoever it might be. So I'm hoping that this gives their skills a bigger audience because they can now go into more production fields and also have the 
capacity to make the sort of content that you and I love. So fingers crossed that goes well. Um, one of the things that caught my eye was a story on Haggerty. And I think we raised this in a previous episode because there's Clarkson's got Clarkson's Farm, which came out through Amazon. James May's done his cooking program, which was surprisingly good, came out through Amazon. Richard Hammond is doing a TV show based around a car restoration company called The Smallest Cog, which is going to Discovery Plus. Now, I don't know if this is related to the fact that... Um, oh, what was that awful thing on Amazon called with him and Tori Belecci? The Great Escapist? Yeah, something like that. Which was awful. Um, but Hammond, to try and raise some money to help the company come together, has been selling off a chunk of his toy collection, including some motorcycle things, a Lotus Esprit. A really a nice Robin. Esprit. Yeah, I had a look at the yeah. I had a look at the article. It seems to be that I would imagine some financing behind the series or the company itself has fallen through and it's, you know, fallen to him to raise a bit of extra capital and so he's selling some cars. Um, mm. And some motorbikes. It's it's hard to tell what what's going on behind it. Um, he's done work for Discovery before, so he did a a, a series. Uh, he's done Engineering Connections. He's done Richard Hammond's yes. Big, both of which are kind of slightly more child friendly series, which are still interesting. I really enjoyed the the, the sort of the Big, which is going to you know huge engineering projects. Um, they're pitched a bit low for me, but I still enjoy seeing them and I still enjoy seeing him as a presenter. Um, mm. And it could be that this is part of a deal with Discovery that's alongside the deal he has with Amazon and there's still more stuff to come with Amazon. Mm. But you're right in saying he hasn't really found a thing that clicks with Amazon Prime in the way that James May did first with Our Man in Japan and then with um, O'Cook, his cooking show, or as Clarkson very much has with Clarkson's Farm. Uh, so perhaps this is him raising some more money for the company, the smallest cog, which mm. I think is something he's involved in as an investor and founder anyway. So maybe they just needed more money to get it done or maybe some funding around the TV show needed doing. Um, I do look forward to the show because oh, yeah. when it's a passion project and it's something that's close to their heart, as farming clearly is for Clarkson, and this certainly sounds like it is for Hammond, then they can drop a bit of the TV presenter sort of sheen and, and shtick and actually be more genuine. Mm. And that's always more appealing to me than the overly heightened persona that you get with him on the Grand Tour sometimes. And let's also just very quickly mention James May's persona on Drive Tribe, which I, I love how beautifully kind of downbeat and cynical he is about practically everything like comment subscribe. And it's I I I think that's a really lovely little niche that he's carved out for himself there. He is of the three of them by far the most marketing and media and online savvy. And he's trying to come he's just so curmudgeonly and and contrary in such a savvy knowing way he he knows mm. what he's talking about which is how he's able to mock it 
True. Uh, he's he's just he's brilliant on on there. I must admit, I don't look at Drive Tribe anymore because it's just turned into a um, a sort of click hole mess of absolute cack and tracking scripts. Yep. Although I do look at their YouTube channel. I don't actually go on the website anymore. And I wonder if anybody actually does. <laughs> I think the um, the moment when they sacked Henry and Jethro and decided to go for user-generated uh, content is the moment I stopped looking at it, basically. But there we go. Okay, so we're going to move on to the theme for today's show. But before we do, I want to ask you, what are you drinking tonight? So I've had a hankering for something kind of everyday and basic to me, which is Maker's Mark Bourbon. Which is a lovely, I want to say, wheated bourbon. I'm probably getting that wrong. But yeah, it's just really nice, really soft, great everyday drinker and very reasonably priced. What about you? What are you drinking? I have a glass of Glenmorangie Nectar d'Or. Oh, nice. Which is um, scotch that's then matured in bourbon casks, which is the only use for bourbon, and then extra matured in sauternes <laughs> casks as well to make it taste a teeny bit like whiskey mixed with pudding. It's delicious. I have, like, I'm holding it to the webcam, so this works really well on radio. I have, like, a centimetre of it left. <laughs> I bought this bottle, like, two years ago, so I've been, I've been holding onto it since then. It's very good. So let's go on. Let's go on to the, today's theme, and I'm going to let you introduce it because, frankly, a it was your idea, and b you know a lot more about this than I did or do. <laughs> so I think we've done a ton of talking about movies that are specifically about cars, documentaries that are about cars or motor racing or people associated with the automotive world. Um, what we haven't really done is dive into the kind of action filmmaking that just has cars as a byproduct of making action movies and for a long time the person who was best at doing this kind of thing in a populist manner was a guy called michael bay now i am an unashamed apologist for michael bay i love his earlier work less so his later stuff as soon as he started doing transformers movies i kind of tuned out a little bit but some of his earlier movies are iconic brilliant action films and i i just love the way he shot them and he had a habit of doing car chases and explosions and vehicular mayhem well before the fast movies came along and well before fast five kind of redefined what an iconic destructive car chase could look like michael bay's been doing this shit for decades so it felt like a good time to go back and look at the master of vehicular mayhem before Justin Lin came along and smashed a safe through the streets of Rio. <laughs> and uh, he, in fact, coined the term mayhem for his uh. particular brand of explosions and fireballs and orange filters and helicopters at sunsets and all of that kind of... Um, I don't know, what is it? Uh, early to mid-90s action movie cliché. <laughs> Yes, and I have to say, I think one of my first introductions to him as a man, I'd seen Transformers, but I think you or somebody perhaps in our uh, orbit sent me a link to a... I know what this is. This is the Michael Bay demands everything to be awesome Verizon <laughs> commercial. It was me that sent it to you, let's be honest. It was. So it, it's basically like 40 seconds of him demanding things be awesome and blowing stuff up. And all of this is an advert for some kind of vaguely high-speed internet service from Verizon in the US. But mm. it's it's a mark of the man that he can poke fun at himself. He's very self-aware. 
Um, but one of the great things about his early movies is they all have brilliant cars in them, iconic cars. And more mm. to the point, a lot of the time, they are Michael Bay's own cars. Uh. So I would, there's like a chunk of movies I want to look at here. Bad Boys, because Chris had never seen Bad Boys, because what the nope. fuck, dude? How have you never seen Bad Boys? <laughs> and of course you do... I've seen Hot Fuss. That's not the same. <laughs> you need to know the source material to appreciate how it's being sent up. <laughs> We're now just comedy complete. It's like, no, you don't get the joke until you've seen the source material. <laughs> so go and watch Krill. Oh, God. Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2, uh, The Rock, naturally. And I stuck in an extra one, uh, which I watched just because I hadn't seen it in ages, um, The Island, which is kind of the end of Michael Bay before he did Transformers and just made movies about toys and stuff. <laughs> he snuck in a few interesting things since the Transformers movies, but largely that's kind of where my... Um, sort of fandom of the man as a director and <laughs> maker of stupid action cinema sort of runs out. But tell me about Bad Boys, because if you haven't seen it, I mean, this must have been amazing for you coming to a movie that is so well-loved and features an utterly iconic movie car. So I will go actually a step further than this. Not only had I never seen it, I knew nothing about it apart from the poster dvd cover with um will smith and martin lawrence so i literally knew next to nothing going in also before i carry on we are going to talk about transformers but i think that's a podcast for another day so bad boys so it's a story about two cops i'm going to start with bad boys and we'll go into bad boys Thing too is, because you, think- you're doing this 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 recap everyone listening to this has seen oh, bad boys me, yeah. so so well actually one thing i did find out in doing the research for this did you know that martin lawrence and will smith weren't the original casting choice i did i know a lot about michael bay movies especially these um, so do you want you can tell this story it's a really good story so it was going to be originally and it was written for dana carvey also known as garth from wayne's world and john lovitz who if you don't know american comedy He's a big star there. I, I, I don't think he's really done that much outside, apart from a Friends cameo. People will remember him from the Friends cameo. He's this kind of loud, high-camp comedian. Um, and for some reason, they didn't go with that pairing. Thank God. Also, Michael Bay said he wasn't happy with the script. He reckoned it was a bit weak, particularly for two black characters. So Will and Martin improvised a lot of the dialogue which i think gives it a really nice kind of feel you can tell the back and forth the back and forth in the movie is one of the main appeals because so much of it is just improvised on the spot or they worked out Mm. what you know the script might say hey man go and do this thing and they were just back and forth and the bickering is (laughs) it's what makes the movie fun and dynamic because this movie was reviewed at the time kind of three out of five it's a fresh coat of paint on old ideas and they're not wrong it's a bickering buddy cop movie well let's talk about so the the the, so the plot of the film is these two cops working together will smith martin lawrence the police precinct they work in got broken into and a huge store a huge stash of seized heroin gets stolen and they have to work out who who was involved, who did it, how did they do it, you know, capture the bad guys and what have you. The 
the premise, I think, is really well done. I think the opening sequence of the film, like you said, is pure Michael Bay in the sense that it's tobacco grads. It really it is. is. I rewatched helicopter it shots. <laughs> it's it's the most tobacco grad of his movies. It's it's like eighties car magazine <laughs> front covers. And I think one thing, looking at IMDb, so this was actually the first film he directed. And if you look in IMDb, everything prior to this, apart from a Playboy video shoot, which is in IMDb, is all music videos. It's all stuff that is turned up, attention-grabbing, short, you know, eye-popping stuff. I think watching Bad Boys, there is kind of... There's almost two aspects to the film. So one is, like I say, the two people, their chemistry is fantastic. I think... Somewhere I saw it described as him having a pornographer's eye when it comes to film and comes to action. By which I mean anything that is action that is gratuitous, not just in terms of sort of female nudity or anything like that, but, you know, somebody jumping through the air, firing guns in slow motion with a funky camera angle. You know, things are tight, things are high, low... It's all just there to kind of... All the action sequences seem to be really kind of poppy and and close. I won't go too much into the story because I really enjoyed it. I think it's really good. I think like a good heist detective film, I think you need to let the story play out. And I don't think we can really talk too much about it apart from, the, let's say, the two leads are great. I think the setup is great. Um, I think Tay Leone... Her character in it is really has a really fine line to walk, and I think she does it very well. I don't think the character really feels exploitative either. I think it's done very sort of fairly. Honestly, one of the better female characters in Michael Bay's movies. He, and this is one of my frustrations with him, he tends to shoot all female characters like porn stars. Mm. They are there in astonishingly short skirts and crop tops with, uh, you know, the camera kind of letching low around legs and mm. up into midriffs and so on. Transformers with Megan Fox in is like a like peak bay being a perv. And yes. it's a bit problematic. Uh, Taylor only kind of gets away with it in this because she's her character's actually got some character around her and she mm. tends to give as much as good as she gets. She's got something to do in the movie, which is really not the case for a lot of bay characters. Um <laughs> So towards the end of this, there are there's a there's a car chase in it, and it's kind of split again, split into two parts. The first is really, I think, really punchy, really visceral. It's Will Smith with his shirt open, running after these bad guys, and them just jumping into cars that they find and hitting other cars that are not supercars. They're not anything special. They don't blow up. But they have that kind of heft, that physical feeling of one car hitting another car, of things being broken and things being hit. And That's one of the things that the Bayhem tag gives you. He is really good. The combination of the camera angles he uses, the cutting he uses, and the sound mm. design of making all of these hits feel really impactful and really huge. But it was a tiny, tiny budgeted thing. It was his first Hollywood movie. 
they had so little money that the part of the film we haven't even talked about yet, the iconic Porsche 964 Turbo 3.6, yep. is Michael Bay's own car because they had no budget to buy or rent one. And Porsche said, yeah, we're not going to support you. We have no idea who you are. <laughs> Fair enough. And yet it is utterly iconic. The opening where it just kind of cruises along super low angle mm. tobacco grad it's shiny as hell it's got those awesome i think split rims S- speed line speed line split wheels rims. they're so gorgeous i mean we were talking earlier on a, um in a signal chat with some people about what the fuss is about all these 964 rester mods and why they're worth so much but then you watch this and go damn but that 964 looks cool as fuck oh yes cooler and- than a singer dls I might suggest. <laughs> anyway. So there is one scene right at the end of this where there is the 964 and an AC Cobra in a kind of do or die chase moment, which again, I won't go into and spoil. What's really interesting is that when the cars are cheap, they were clearly just thumping each other. This last sort of climactic scene as the action unfolds, and again, I'm kind of being a little bit cagey, I think you can tell that... It's Bay's car. They've only the got one car. Well, they've only got one car, but even the even the, the AC Cobra, the AC Cobra crashes, but the, it's kind of, it's cut between car driving along, car spinning, clearly in the middle of nowhere, an explosion that covers a cut to where a wrecked car is suddenly next to a wall. It's very, very... It's cut. I, I rewatched that sequence just before um, we started recording, just because I wanted to to kind of remind myself uh, of, of what what that whole chase was about. And the it's cut really choppily with a lot of the sort of bouncy up and down camera angles, particularly when they're close up on a telephoto lens on the drivers inside the cars to give mm. that feeling of punchy action. Mm. Um, and then the outside shots are very quick, very blurry. There is a gorgeous rig shot of the AC Cobra spinning out where yes. it's, you know, obviously just, like you say, in the middle of nowhere, but they're on an airfield and at the end of the movie anyway, so that's okay. All of the stuff is, it's dynamic. That is what Bay is really good at, is that kind of punchy, dynamic feel. He uses very long lenses uh, to sort of compress everything so that his backgrounds are full of stuff. There's a gorgeous <laughs> shot of the 964 caning it away from this hangar that's exploding behind and it's a blink and you'll miss it but it's 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 full on and he's gone on to do some of the you know most destructive car chases i can think of having gone back and watched bad boys 2 the rock the mm. island and you know i'm going to ignore transformers because it all just kind of get into just turns into what someone on the internet has deemed a cg fuckathon <laughs> <laughs> hitty smashy crashy yes bashy. but bad boys is where it started it made an icon of the 964 turbo to the point yep. where i don't know how much they're worth now but there were only 1400 made and it's the last 911 turbo that had rear wheel drive until, you know, the 993 did four-wheel drive, 996 four-wheel drive, and then they did the GT2s, which were obviously special variants. But it's a special-looking car, and you it's also a mark of how successful Bay was already that he could afford a $100,000 car and then, you know, just True. use it in the movie. There's one other story about Bad Boys I wanted to drop in. There is a shot just before that turbo racing away from Explodey um, hangar, <laughs> which was one the studio didn't want to give Bay... Uh, and it's where a bad guy is 
blown up and exploded away from the door of an aeroplane. And you see the guy yes. fly into this, fly across the, the, the sort of the the space of the hangar and crash into a big pile of shelves. And I believe that was a shot. The studio said, we don't have enough money to do that. You can't have it. And Bay was like, but I need it. Uh, and he ended up writing a check for something like $130,000, which was his fee for making the movie. And he said, okay, wow. I will pay for it. And then when you see it, if you agree that if the movie needed it, I'll get my money back. And he paid for that, and he, I think he's in the director's commentary. He says something along the lines of, "He actually, when he started the take, he held the check for the money up in front of the lens before they shot it." <laughs> so, oh, there's cool. a, I mean, this is they were really running and gunning. It's so like you said, the, the the script. I think they must have thrown almost all of it out because so much of it is that back and forth bickering buddy comedy, um, and then the shot that made Will Smith a movie star. It's the shot that you've seen in a million Michael Bay movies and that's parodied in Hot Fuzz. It is the low angle rotating shot of your heroes Mm. shot with a telephoto lens where they are turning one way while the camera rotates around them another way whilst things move really fast in the background in a parallax fashion and Will Smith's got (laughs) his shirt open to show off his rippling abs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the shot. This is a guy who was on a TV show called Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, an awesome TV mm. show, but it's a TV show nonetheless, and, and Martin Lawrence was just a comedian. Well, bear in mind that when this was... So this came out 95, 95. So that sort of period in Will Smith's career, yes, we've. I think we're, we're probably post-Fresh Prince at that point, but I think that's kind of Independence Day. It's before Independence Day. Kind of before he did Independence Day, so... It would have. It was shot, I think, slightly earlier. But yeah, this he was still on Fresh Prince when he did this because there's a, an episode oh. where he actually name checks yes. Bad Boys in Fresh Prince. But Bad Boys, amazing kind of just buddy cop movie. Um, the plot's kind of shy, and the bad guy's hilarious. <laughs> yes, uh, Bay actually says that he's got this French actor whose name it escapes me, but who is totally nonplussed about the whole thing and it turns out it was a really nice guy but he's an absolute scumbag in the movie um, <laughs> but it's super fun and it's lo-fi so this is Bay using all of the tricks in his you know ad making mm. run and gun hyperactive playbook to make nine million dollars look like 90 million dollars yes part of the problem yeah. with his career going forward is people started giving him too much money <laughs> <laughs> so i would rank this of all michael bay's made uh, like 16 no 14 movies so far there's another two in in production according to um imdb and the first movie he made is the second best movie he's ever made and the second movie he made is the best movie he's made which is the rock part of that which i also haven't seen oh, <laughs> god what is wrong with you what were you doing in the 90s that you haven't seen these movies? I, I, I don't know. I All right, was, well, then we, well, we'll skip over that because we, we'll come to The Rock and, um, like, no, we can't really. It's not that much of a car movie. It's got very little to do with cars, but there is a brilliant car chase with a yellow Ferrari F355 um, where Nick Cage, who is a noted petrol head, um, is chasing down uh, the one of the two heroes of the movie, Cage being one, and Sean Connery, being the other and Sean Connery has escaped in a Hummer um, and Cage is chasing him down in a yellow 355 and this was shot in San Francisco because the story um, centres around the titular The Rock Alcatraz Island and Bay he had a bit more money for this but 
San Francisco only let him shut down like two city blocks to shoot this massive car chase. And it it took, he describes it as thousands of signatures. And he describes filming this car chase as the biggest clusterfuck he's ever done in his entire <laughs> film career. They ran so far behind on the shooting schedule, the studio dispatched like three executives to come and give Bay a bollocking. Um, <laughs> and there's so many stories around this, but you know Connery was actually on Bay's side for, for a lot of this and actually came to Bay's defence when he was getting stick from the studio. But the car chase is just more of bad boys insanity and destruction you know the ferrari gets driven through a building and then ends up in a massive crash cage gets out and some guy looks at it and goes dude you just fucked up your ferrari and cage looks at him and goes it's not mine <laughs> in that typical slightly bug-eyed cage way which is a really weird line reading but you know people seem to like it <laughs> um but you know the rock as a movie as an action movie is the best thing that Michael Bay has done in large part, thanks to Sean Connery and Ed Harris, who is the movie's bad guy, but it actually is such a brilliantly played and written bad guy for a Michael Bay movie that you totally buy it. It's also got Michael Bean in it and Michael Bean is awesome. Um, but yeah, in, in the first two films he makes for Hollywood, he makes two great car chases makes, okay. There's no really iconic cars in, in the rock. The yellow three, five, five is kind of cool, but I think it's an F1 paddle shift, so meh. <laughs> but they're the two best movies in his back catalogue. Bad Boys 2, sequel. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing with the thing with the sequel, and just sort of one thing that I did notice with the two of them, the first one's two hours long. The second one is two and a half hours long. It's too long. I, I, I wrote down some notes on, on Bad Boys 2 because first sequel of his career... And obviously, Bad Boys being a huge success meant there was going to be a sequel. And mm. this time, the studio gave Michael Bay a lot of money and a lot of freedom. <laughs> and this is a noisy, incoherent mess of a film compared to Bad Boys, which is very easy to understand, very... It moves from point A to point B to point C, and it's logical, and it doesn't hang around too much, and it doesn't get distracted Mm. Bad Boys 2 tries to give everybody something to do and in doing so just kind of wanders all over the shop. And the banter here, because it's not improvised as much, because it's written mm. more, is not as good. It's the it's it's there and it's good and the callbacks to the first film are good, but it's not as off the cuff and fresh somehow. But it does feature an amazingly cool 550 Marinello, which is by far and away my favourite mm of the Ferrari's recent output. Again, this is Bay's own car that he put into the film. I don't know why he used it, but he just, maybe he just went, this is what we need this time around. So the man is a genuine petrol head. And <laughs> again, this is used in a, an utterly amazing, utterly destructive car chase where there's cars and boats falling off a truck and being dodged on a freeway. And mm. like you said earlier on about the whole, the, 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 the car hits and smashes, you feel all of these. It's constructed in such a way that every, every near miss and every hit is just the most over-the-top thing that is possible. One thing I did notice, though, watching that car chase, and in fact, the first, first third of Bad Boys 2, which even if you don't watch the rest of it, that... The first third with that car chase in is absolutely worth a watch. The 
the fact that we've gone from 1995 to 2003, the opening has ditched the tobacco grads and everything, and I mean everything, is now either blue or bright green tinted. It's very, very, very graded, isn't it? It and, is. And, you know, blue with with gold lighting, sort of orangey lighting on, yes. on the the... The human characters was a huge bay thing at the time. And, you know, action cinema in general, look at something like Con Air or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other movies around the same time for copying the same trick, even if it's not being directed by Michael Bay. The other thing I would say about Bad Boys I forgot to mention is it has a great soundtrack. It's got a score by Mark Mancina, who also did Speed and Twister, which is really Pulsate, pulsing, driving, groovy, cool-sounding mm. score. Bad Boys 2 has a mess of P. Diddy and Dr. Dre and all sorts of other stuff just sitting like turds on your screen. <laughs> well, you know, you know who did the main score? Um, it's not Brian Tyler, is it? No. It's the same guy who did the score for um, Gone in 60 Seconds. Okay, so a little bit of that. The, the score, the, there's something about the score of the first one which is propulsive. Like yes. speed, you can. It's it's very the the two scores sit side by side as very much the work of one guy at a certain point in his career, and it's they're both very hard to get hold of. The full score for speed and the full score for bad, bad boys are hard to find because they were only sort of very tiny releases, um, mm. but they they're full of sort of a bunch of synths and and guitars and there's lots of driving pumping beats but not in that kind of hip hop th- sludgy thumping beats they're propulsive whereas in bad boys 2 it's all hip hop and it's all less dynamic and mm-hmm. that really shows in the action scenes it feels less less propulsive but the action is like six or seven times as crazy and like i say there's this chase where things start falling off of trucks and are dodged by the cars and sometimes not dodged um <laughs> sometimes by stunt drivers and a few times by a very unconvincing cg ferrari 550 yes. which rolls on its suspension far too much and looks a bit like a cartoon if i'm honest and also it has the same whatever the car's doing it always has this same pull through the gears, so it's always the same clip of engine noise for all of the scenes. And that I it's was in. listening to this. This is how nerdy we get. I was listening to this and thinking, is that the sound from a three hundred and sixty Challenge Stradale? Because it doesn't t- sound like me to a Ferrari V twelve of this era. It sounds like the sort of raspy mm. howl and bite from a three sixty challenge Stradale. It sounds like a flat plane V eight from Ferrari, not a V twelve, and that's how nerdy I am when I watch these things. <laughs> but yes, you're right. It it is, and I didn't see if it's running a manual or not. Um I would hope Michael Bay being a petrol head that it is, but it did remind me of how much I would like five fifty Marinello. Bad boys too, otherwise there's a whole bunch of, of crap in the middle. And then there is an utterly destructive car chase between a Series 3 Land Rover and a Hummer H2, I want to say. Yes. Where yeah. this yellow H2 drives through a mansion and then drives through a shanty town on the side of a hill and somehow this ancient wheezy Series 3 Land Rover does not overheat <laughs> and keel out. It's sort of a keel over at the side of the road, but somehow keeps up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, the fact that the head gasket didn't go on it, I think was uh, an eternal credit I, I say this as a, as a lover of old Land Rovers, but come on, man. I mean, the, the Hummer's a big pile of cack too. <laughs> it is. But yeah, there's. I remember watching this and 
I think in the cinema and thinking, really? So this is how you do a car chase sequence now? After that first one, you just go, what should we do now? Just drive a car through some buildings. Mm. <laughs> and that's literally what it is. Again, hugely destructive, masses of explosions. But that first sequence you're right the first third of the movie is still brilliant it, it goes off the rails a bit after that but i was really surprised like i say going in completely cold having watched all of the fast and furious films you do watch it and you kind of go oh this is where it comes from like oh this is this is these, these are the shoulders that they are standing on when they and do sometimes the not films. doing it yeah and sometimes not doing it as well yeah definitely um, going going back and revisiting these for this i have kind of going yes this, there is craft here there is good stuff now michael bay is often accused of cutting too much and i think quite often that's fair but in the context of a sort of frantic massive action-packed car chase that really works and mm. he also has a, a reputation for doing things practically for filming this with stuntmen wherever possible and putting his car his cameras in interesting places and i think on some of the later like the transformers movies he's got cameras mounted on like elaborate skateboard rigs so they can whiz along at 70 miles an hour being driven by amazing stunt drivers i mean he the CG stuff in, in Bad Boys 2 is a bit cack, let's be honest. Um, but yes. a lot of the other stuff is not. It's practical, and I really like that. You can tell that it's kind of early days, like I say, for the CGI, certainly. But suddenly we've got rig shots. We've got cameras mounted in odd places that are making new and different camera moves. Although I do think that the rig shots, not the the camera rig on a moving car shots, but the ones where the car is actually on a trailer. Yeah. Some of those kind of stand out a bit, but I think the, I do just think that the, the energy and the yeah. visceral feeling of That's a lot of what what's he's going great on. At. That's what he's great at is that energy. It's, it's, his stuff is always referred to as popcorn cinema, but he's really great at making you sit there and feel like you're in the middle of it all. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also watched, or rewatched rather, The Island, which uh, is a movie of his from like, I guess, 2003, before he got into the Transformers world. And that has a, a sort of like a, a motorbike stroke, hoverbike stroke, truck chase, which cribs <laughs> a lot from Bad Boys 2 in that there is a scene where a truck has things falling off of it and mm. people have to dodge those things. In this case, it's like um, railway uh, wheels like axles and wheels which is weird because just earlier in the movie they show all the trains as hovering on like wires strung across buildings in the city so I don't know how that works but again <laughs> the, you see these things crash through cars and you see this sort of hover bike dodging them and it's you're right there in the thick of it um, and this I think is the point where he started to get car companies offering him prototype vehicles or concept ah, vehicles to, right. to use in his films. So there's a, I want to say there's a Chevy of some kind in this movie, which is a future concept thing that he's, the one of the, the characters in it, um, especially there's, there's clones involved. I won't bore you with the plot of the <laughs> island. It's it's fun. Ewan McGregor is always watchable. And whenever there's petrol head stuff, you can tell that McGregor is a petrol head himself. The concept is great, but it quickly descends into just stock Bayhem with, you know, massive orange and blue tints everywhere. It's the first time I can remember him kind of getting concept vehicles, which, of course, when he went on to do Transformers, I think loads like the Bumblebee was a concept Camaro mm. and and so on. And through those movies, he's been able to get more stuff. Um, 
Interestingly, on the subject of car crashes, I found an interview in Car and Driver with Michael Bay where he said he went to a car, Chinese car company when he was shooting in China and they were showing them him their crash test facility and he looked at it and went, that's eh, all right. And he said to the guy, you know what? I bet you anything I've crashed more cars than you have. <laughs> Which is uh, probably not wrong. <laughs> I think one thing that I have, I will come away from this whole experience with, apart from... A newfound love of bad boys. I think it's found its way into my sort of top five, top ten list. I want to go and see more Michael Bay films now. I've seen Transformers, oh, when it came out, but... I watched it in the cinema. I was going to rewatch it for this, but didn't have time. I remember enjoying the first one. And then I remember watching the second one and thinking, wow, this is shite. And then I haven't seen any more of them since. I want to kind of jump ahead quickly and give a mention of Six Underground, which we did review on an episode of the podcast when it came out quite a while ago now. Um, This is the movie he did with Netflix, uh, which opens with a huge car chase with a bright green Alpha Julia Quadrifoglio. And it is noisy and crazy in all the ways that Michael Bay always was. But the world's moved on in that the Fast and Furious guys have pushed the bar further. And I felt like he hadn't quite matched what they were doing. And he couldn't stop himself from being the sort of 16-year-old kid with a hard-on that he always (laughs) seems to be when he's filming these movies. And it's okay, but the rest of the movie is so bad even ryan reynolds who i like in almost everything yeah can't make me get to the end of this movie i have tried three times and i have still not seen the end so i've no <laughs> idea how it ends but the car chase at the beginning is fun but the fun does not extend to the rest of the movie which is a thing that he used to be so good at is making his movies fun now i will say that he has produced a couple of stinkers pearl harbor Dreadful, apart from the attack sequences on Pearl Harbor, which are amazing. Mm. But the movie itself sucks so bad (laughs) and is immortalised in Team America (laughs) as sucking so bad. Um, Armageddon, Armageddon, which is a scientifically accurate documentary about how we would handle an asteroid on a collision course with the Earth. I used to live with someone who was a big astronomer and I used to wind them up no end by claiming that (laughs) everything in Armageddon was totally scientifically real. (laughs) Um, Armageddon is also absolute crap. I rewatched it recently and I didn't, I don't think I got to the end. It was so crap, but yes, if you have not revisited a bunch of Bay's early movies, then honestly it's worth doing. There's nearly always an iconic car or two, especially if you look at bad boys, bad boys two. Yes. And the car chases are just, he, they were at the time he was the only person doing that kind of thing. And it stood out from, from all of the other action movies of the, of the time, all of the imitators then took his mantle and tried to run with it. But it was only really until I think fast four and then definitely fast five where people started to be able to surpass yeah. the kind of thing he'd laid down the decade before. So if you haven't seen Bad Boys, like Chris, what the hell have you been? Go and watch it right now. Then watch Bad Boys 2. Then watch The Rock. And, you know, if you feel like watching something a more silly but recent than The Island, 
I can't say I recommend anything after that, to be honest. But like you say, we'll come to Transformers. Transformers is a tricky one because I, I'm not, I can't remember how much actual real car content there is in it. <laughs> we shall find out and we'll talk about it in a future episode. But for now, let's move on to what Henry Catchpole has been up to this week. Have you and I both got a different Henry Catchpole video for this episode? We have. So you linked in the show notes the Morgan Plus 4 CX-T, uh, which is their ridiculous £200,000 off-road Morgan, which is basically a Morgan with some big tyres on it. Um, <laughs> and the video that Henry did with Carfection is lovely. And yep. the walk and talk around the car with whoever it is from Morgan that kind of conceived this shows that there's been a huge depth of engineering going into it. And I watched the whole thing going, but why? <laughs> because it exists. That is the only... It's one of those cars. I know, but when you watch the thing go over the edge of a hill and it doesn't have any suspension travel and you think, <laughs> why don't you just get a Land Rover? It would be mega going up Pike's Peak. If you could do it in like a sort of FIA homologated flat cap, maybe with like a dog in the passenger seat. <laughs> now, see, the car here is for, I think somebody said it on the comments, this is the kind of car that a 1930s Explorer would go yes. and, and, and do racing in. Yes. Um, would do the Paris Dakar in. And it is that, and it's very cool, but the price is just crazy. I mean, yes. I'm sure there are very, very rich people who buy Morgans out there that they've gone, well, okay, we can sell a few of these. Um and they're it's making kind seven? of wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of wonderful that it exists, but it, it's it's really not for me. Um, I wanted to highlight the Ferrari week that they did, where they ran mm. a bunch of films on Ferraris, including a review of the Roma, um, a mention of the paddle shift gearbox in the F8 Tributo. Can't remember if it's that. I think it's the F8, and then the engine of the 812. Superfast, which features a wonderful intro in a music shop where they show, you know, all the things you can buy that make lovely music, like guitars and so on. And then there's just a key hanging on next to all the guitars that says 812 Superfast, <laughs> which is uh, such a, a wonderful conceit. And I've compared Henry's videos to the kind of creativity you see in skateboarding and BMXing and mountain biking video intros. Mm. And this feels very much of a piece with that, where it's the kind of wonderful whimsy that you might see in a Danny McCaskill video or some yes. of the those where they're looking to give you an intro in that is something familiar with a twist. And I love that so much. So I really wanted to, to call that out. If you haven't watched any of the Ferrari Week stuff, then any order will do. But honestly, I'd start with the 812 super fast and put some headphones on and turn the volume up. Yes. So my pick for this week... And I was wondering if you'd seen it or not, because I thought we could try it here. But um, it was the F1 series. What are they calling it? Um, I've forgotten what the name of the, the series is. Grill the Grill Grid. The Grid. It's, in the, it's in the show notes. Grill the Grid, where they basically ask all the drivers certain questions or get them to do challenges or whatever. The challenge in this video is to name every F1 world champion in reverse chronological order which is brilliant because it's one of those things where as a viewer you go okay well it's this this and this and this and oh who won it that year and was that yeah, the year when they did the thing it's so tough i watch this this popped up on my feed i think will buxton actually tweeted it to highlight what a great job one of the drivers had done yes and, and i won't watched say it who. i watched it and went oh my goodness me could i do this and certainly i could get as far as 
the early 80s to late mm. 70s and then I run out of steam because if you ask me name every Formula One world champion I'd get pretty close the one yep. who keeps getting me is Denny Holm yep. I keep forgetting him I could get pretty close I reckon I could get pretty close could I name every world champion and the year they got their championship in it I might get 50% could I do it in reverse chronological <laughs> order no not a chance it's very interesting watching this where you see all of the current grid call out Lewis's titles. And you sense here is the dominance of the man where they go mm. 2020, Lewis, 2019, Lewis, 2018, or, Lewis, or 2017, goes, Lewis. As he goes, he's like, 2018, May, 2017, May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, There's a couple of moments where Alonso naming his two titles with a, with a shit-eating grin on his face... <laughs> Vettel has a just a, a sneaky little grin when he says 2013 to 2010 me. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a, again, we won't spoil it. There's a fantastic Kimmy moment in it, which is just oh, pure Kimmy. It's pure Kimmy. But there are a number of drivers who do better than I thought. Yep. And one driver in particular who just stuns you with their knowledge. Um, if you've been over Twitter, you'll know who it is. If you are vaguely familiar with F1 drivers of the current grid, you'll probably guess, but please go and watch this. Um, and there is a follow-up video from the F1 channel as well on this as well, which is also worth looking at. And if you do watch it, or even if you haven't, if you just fancy trying it now, pause this, get a pen and a bit of paper and try it. See- I got, I tried this and I got as far as 1982. Mm. I got, um, I couldn't remember where PK got his first title versus Rosberg getting his first title. And I forgot all about Alan Jones. And then I kind of ran out. Because like I say, I could name all of the champions apart from Denny Holm, but I could not remember the order. And that's the thing. And we should also note that the driver who won this, not only did it in reverse chronological order, but is doing it in a language that's not his native language. <laughs> yes. Which That's is like quadruply point. impressive. So please, please, please watch this. Definitely. What's your channel? So my channel, my channel, I've gone for Ghostbusters for a couple of reasons. Who are you going to call? Exactly. What they've done, the Ghostbusters YouTube channel has been around for a while. It is the official one. If you go back through the archives, it has whole episodes of the real Ghostbusters cartoon series from the late uh, late 80s, early 90s. More crucially, it's got things like the... um, What's the phrase I'm looking for? It's got a mini documentary about how they discovered and rebuilt, with fan help, the Ecto-1. It's going to be the home of the um, the behind-the-scenes content. If you look in the trailer very carefully, Adam Savage from Mythbusters is actually in the trailer. And he's going to be on set doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. They've got stuff about the latest Lego Ecto-1. 
if you like, I saw that in the Lego store. It's really expensive. <laughs> it's huge as well. I've got the, the, I know, the I've older got no one, space but, for it. <laughs> I'd um, love it, but I've got no space. But yeah, so it's got the trailer there. It's got it, it's a, just a really good trove of all things Ghostbusters. And if you watch the movies that made us on Netflix, if you trawl through this channel, and I think particularly now that we're in the run up to the new film, that's where you're going to see the behind the scenes. That's where you're going to see the walk around of the new Ecto One. That's where you're going to see all of the stuff that comes with it. And I think it's going to be fascinating. And if you're a child of the 80s like us, it's the place to be. What's your YouTube picks? I've got a video from a channel I think is kind of up and coming, but it's a very, very familiar face to anyone that watched Top Gear and anyone that is aware of celebrities who are petrol heads. This is a video of Jodie Kidd, who is a now ex-model, but noted huge petrol head. She's been on Top Gear loads and she knows her onions. She's done the Millimilia, she's done racing. She really knows her stuff. And she's been given a tour of McLaren CEO Zach Brown's personal car collection at the United Autosports headquarters. And it's wonderful because you get to see what a genuine petrol head Jody Kidd is, which is always wonderful to see because you always mm-hmm. kind of go... Are they, are they, do they just like modern cars or do they have some knowledge of the history? And she does have some knowledge of the history and she is clearly um, very taken by a lot of the cars. And you get to see Zach Brown showing just why he is such a genuine guy and why he's absolutely the right person to be taking McLaren forward in the 21st century. Mm. There's some gorgeous stuff in there. There's, you know, Senna's very first, oh, Senna's world Kart Championship competing kart, Mika Hakkinen's Championship kart. Um, there's um, Mario Andretti's. No, sorry, not is it Mario Andretti's uh, championship winning car? There's a wonderful McLaren from the year after Bruce McLaren died. So it's it's one of their Can-Am cars in the gorgeous papaya orange, but it's the car that was raced. After wow. Bruce McLaren died, he's got so much in his collection. Mm. And it's a mark of the man that he's got such taste in choosing the cars because he says, you know, they they have to have been winning cars, preferably championship winning, but certainly race winning cars. But also of his success before he came to McLaren, you know, to have the means to collect this amount of historic significant racing cars is astonishing and you know there's there's some there's a senna monaco winning mclaren formula one car there's so much in there to see it's really fun now jody kid's got a channel called kid in a sweet shop which is a uh, brilliant name it's a brilliant name the channel has like less than ten thousand subscribers which seems low um but it's full of interesting stuff she does some rally driving and she's very enthusiastic, very genuine. Um, so that's worth a follow, but that's not my channel. I've actually chosen a channel which I happened upon completely by accident called Isimi. That's I-S-S-I-M-I, all in caps. And I found this because they've done a video about the Lexus LFA, um, hmm. which I was watching. They have a series on their channel called Behind the Scenes, um, with a guy who is called Derek Tam Scott, Tam Dash Scott. Um, now, he describes himself as having a spirit age of in excess of 75 years old. Um, he's younger than that, obviously, but he went to work at one of the United States' foremost vintage car dealers at the age of 16. And they've done a whole sequence of videos of him going through significant 
classic cars and interesting, notable sports cars. And I came to them having watched this video, which is titled, you know, the Lexus LFA was wildly misunderstood until it wasn't, which is a gorgeous look at a very intriguing car. Um, beautifully filmed. There's lots of original footage of them driving it. Um, you get a real feel for what the sound inside the cabin is like versus outside the cabin. Um, it puts forth a very good case as to why this is going to be a future classic. You know, in the US at least, they are worth twice as much as they were a year ago. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're appreciating seriously, which is interesting because we, you and I both know someone who had one and sold it quite recently. Um, and possibly because he didn't drive it or, or didn't mm. get on with it because it's a it's an interesting car because it's got a pretty shonky gearbox and that's highlighted in the video but the channel is full of such interesting things um, I had to look up who Isimi were and it turns out that they are a little bit like collecting cars in the UK it's a sort of oh. it's a it's a dealer for interesting and exclusive um, sports cars and historics and so on. So if you go to isimi.com, then you know there's there's cars for sale across the United States, Europe, um, and they've got lots of exclusive stuff, racing cars. You know, 430 Scuderia Spider, 911 GT3s, all sorts of interesting things. And this must be their YouTube channel where they get to promo some of the stuff they've got for sale, <laughs> and in doing so, also feature you know, an interesting car that people might not have heard about. So this is really worth a watch. I, Like I said, I came into it from this video on the LFA, but there's a bunch of other stuff on their channel that is really worth looking for. They've got a well-organized page where they've got playlists. So this guy, Derek Tam Scott, has done something on the Ferrari 330 GTC, the McLaren F1, um, the 962 Koenig C62, which I think you've mentioned on the podcast before now. Um, the... Carrera RS from 1973, the Lamborghini Miura. So there's a whole series of things, very mixed, but all of them sort of significant classic cars. Um, they've got a a thing called the Carmudgeon Show, which sounds interesting, which I haven't looked into, but this is the aforementioned Derek Tam Scott talking to with uh, Jason Camisser, who I remember from Motor Trend. Mm. He was the head-to-head presenter with um, Johnny Lieberman before... Jethro came along. Uh, Jethro Bovingdon did a, a bunch of series with Motor Trend, with Johnny Lieberman doing head-to-head and Ignition, and it was brilliant. But before Jethro was working with them, um, Johnny Lieberman did head-to-head with Jason Camisser, and they were brilliantly sort of fun, scripted, good banter between them. And um, I really enjoyed him in that, so I'm quite looking forward to checking these out. Uh, and then there's stuff, you know, Spotlight on cars like the Porsche Carrera GT, the McLaren Senna, the Lancia Delta Integrale. It's it's all the right cars that you would expect from someone who professes to be looking at historic and important classic uh, and supercars from the last, I don't know, 50 years. So that's worth checking out. I have subscribed without even watching a single video. That sounds fantastic. So, yes, it's becoming increasingly harder to find channels for this, <laughs> for this podcast. So I was utterly thrilled to happen upon this in my recommendations. Um, and I do recommend you check it out. But that brings us to the end of this Bayhem-tastic podcast, where I think we should probably run through a few begs and, and guilt minute things of going, you know, please 
share podcast, email us, share and enjoy, tweet about it, all that good stuff. Tell us any um, channels that you recommend that we yeah, should be watching. Tell us your tell us your recommendations and, and thank you for those of us for those of you who have been listening to us out there in, in, in Twitter land. I did note that um, Ian from Pop Band Colour name checked us while he was stuck in a traffic jam on the M twenty five. So I'd like to say thank you very much for that. That's awesome and I hope that you got home before ten o'clock. <laughs> But until then, I think we're going to disappear off driving a 964 with a massive orange explosion in the sky behind us. Sounds good. Until next time, everyone. 